3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, crew owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders, past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. Good morning. I love it. Hello. What are we listening to? Oh, okay. What day is it? I was like, well, what does she mean who we're listening to? We weren't listening to anybody, but um, we were listening <laughs> but to some interesting oh. music. 8.55 a.m. Tuesday breakfast. Mm. You're with the Tuesday breakfast crew. Full <laughs> house for a change. Yeah. No, this is exciting. Never happened. Mm. We're the only ones awake today. <laughs> yeah. uh, Jacob, this time. Jacob, shout out to Jacob if you're <laughs> listening from Green Left Weekly. Also awake. Mm. Oh, yeah? Yeah. On the social medias? On the social medias. Right. On yep. the social medias. Yeah. Mm. Is that the... It is. Ah. I love that we keep tabs on everybody. <laughs> <laughs> That's what social media Keep your called. friends close. Enemies close. Uh, <laughs> kidding. Jacob's not an enemy. That's <laughs> just, I don't want to spread that rumor. Oh gosh, the rifts in the breakfast cruise. <laughs> um, and I guess there's one good thing about Cup Day. What's that? There was absolutely no traffic. I was like fanging it down Ligon Street. What mm. were you listening to? Um... Uh, I was listening to Marvin Gaye on Smooth FM. Yes. I want to. <laughs> Perfect fanging at <laughs> All the windows down. <laughs> How th- old are you, Jacob? Oh, my gosh, no. You have not lived with this girl. <laughs> oh, my God, you're so cute. <laughs> Luckily, Mum's not listening this morning, so this is the uncensored version. What? She's not she's listening. Sl- sleeping in. She lies. Our number, number one fan. fan. Oh, oh, I mean, our number one fan. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Oh, my goodness. Mm. Hey, it's Diwali today. Happy Diwali. Yeah. Happy Diwali. What's Diwali, Anya, for listeners who may not know? It's the festival of lights. <clears throat> it's about overcoming darkness and, you know, there's a whole story behind it. Anyway. <laughs> it's <laughs> poetic Skip and beautiful. Skip all that and go straight to the food. <laughs> it's only Ooh, celebrated yes. in a few countries today, Singapore, Malaysia, some parts of India, and then it's celebrated in other parts of India tomorrow. So for all my Tamil folks out there, happy Diwali. Any of the Diwali Nalbarshtakal. Um, I hope you eat lots of delicious food. Yeah, mm. I will be. Come join me. Open invite. Yum. Mm. We were mm. actually waiting for you to bring food. I know. I left all my food at home. I said, "I just got me. I'll cook you some." Yeah, I've got a, I've got a muffin here. <laughs> Promise of dal that never eventuated. I have to say, excuse no, me. You made me a delicious eggplant masala the other day, which mm. was an incredible lunch treat. Yum. Thank you. Mm. Thanks, Mom. You're an amazing cook. Oh, mm. stop it. <laughs> no, you really are. Remember her housewarming? Oh, yeah. Get together? Oh. No, I mean, so I much food. half of it was poppy, but also <laughs> <laughs> like 90% <laughs> was right. you. We're, tell, we're saying this to you, but mm. when poppy's around, <laughs> it was equal labor. Oh, my God. Should we get down to news headlines? Yeah. Mm. Um, so this isn't a news headline. This is more something that I watched last night. So last night, Four Corners had a program called Crime and Panic, and it was about the racialized media reporting of African youth and the supposed gang wave, which doesn't exist. Um, What was interesting about this docker was that they had 
uh, a county court judge, county court chief judge called Peter Kidd. And he made some comments that really elucidate the fact that this is all blown out of proportion. He said, and I quote, the media choose to report upon these cases. That creates an impression that we, that our work, a very significant proportion of our work is taken up with African youths from the western suburbs of Melbourne. That's a false impression. First of all, I laughed when he said West, West Ma, Western suburbs. I said, wow, that's very precise. No, not even northern suburbs. Anywho, um, the commander of Melbourne's northwest metro region, Tim Hansen, um, echoed those sentiments and he said, we're seeing headlines and reporting that exacerbates the problem, reporting on things that we're not necessarily seeing. And the doco, the doco had a lot of facts and figures. Um, South Sudanese uh, make, in terms of criminal, um, sorry, uh, alleged criminal offenders, they make 1% of that, that group. Mm. And I guess that, documentary was also perfect timing because it's important that we remain vigilant about law and order election platforms. Um, they're divisive, lazy, and they also further marginalise uh, communities of colour. Um, one group that's trying to change public opinion is a group called Democracy in Colour. They run, it's a, so it's a group staffed by communities affected by racialized profiling um, but their current campaign, which is called Stronger Than Fear, is calling, is calling on everybody, black and white, Asian, etc., to sign up. The purpose of the campaign isn't to tell folks how to vote, but to question policies that create division and fear-mongering. So they're doing some interesting stuff. They're going, they're doing door-knocking. They're also doing a community gathering where they're inviting parties and people it's like a community, what would you call it, community, I don't know what you would call it, but it's basically the whole community gets together, the elected parties are invited, and people get to ask them questions, And um, but it's, it'll be interesting to see who ends up coming and who declines, um, we already have our own ideas about how that will turn out. Anywho, Democracy in Colour is on Facebook and their website is democracyincolouroneword.org and we will share all those links. Um, but yeah, the doco, as we were talking about it before, um, Anya and Lauren, we were saying how the doco isn't, not the doco, the, the show, um, they took a very impartial approach, I felt like, and I get it. That's how media should be reported. But on, on, on an issue that's creating harm and creating policies that will eventually lock people up and further marginalise communities, that's not something that you can sort of be like, okay, let's hear what the other side has to say. Mm-hmm. It should, they should have taken a harder approach. And the boys were so beautiful and they were, and they poured their heart out and they were so, like lively and just happy and joyous and knowing that there are those who would listen, who would watch that documentary and sort of be like, yeah, I'm not convinced. It's just you want to protect these boys, but I don't know if if this program will change opinions. I doubt it, but yeah. 
Um, so I think we'll just follow that up maybe with a quick weather update. Ayan, <clears throat> um, that was really powerful. Thank you. Yeah, no worries. I, it was just like, it, I did you see Twitter, all the comments? Mm. Like This morning. <coughs> yeah. Yeah, I didn't watch the program. I just followed the commentary from Twitter. And, yeah, I'm not sure if you can be impartial about this issue when the whole issue has been very, very one-sided the whole way. Mm. Mm. And I don't think it's important to present both sides or play the devil's advocate anymore because people are being harmed. You know, there's a tangible effect on these people every day. Mm. Yeah. And, and if racialized reporting is at the center of that, mm. your commentary should be focusing on that bias. Mm. Yeah. I mean, there are enough facts and figures to show how this issue has been so skewed um, and how, you know, uh, South Sydney's people make up such a, such a small proportion of the community to be able to commit crime the way um, they've, they've been portrayed. Mm. You know, all of that is out there. The facts are out there. And it's, well, nobody's, the, the people who are harming these communities aren't listening to that or aren't reading those facts. So there needs to be a different approach. So, mm. yeah, I don't believe in this. Let's sit on, on the fence and, and mm. look at both sides thing anymore. Mm. Mm. Um, Sorry, the weather no, update. Yes. I know. I, was like, I don't really want to follow it up with that, but I will. It's going to be a top of 22 today. Uh, okay. A storm is coming. It's 18 degrees Isn't it? yeah. outside. A storm is coming. <laughs> yeah. I know. This is coming. It was unintentionally sultry, but um, it is quite steamy outside. So <laughs> sorry if your hair frizzes. For 10 days in November. Defendant Extends Public Housing will be campaigning on the steps of Parliament House to make public housing an election issue. Public housing, everybody's business. Join us anytime from Wednesday the 14th of November, that's midday the 14th of November, to Saturday midnight the 24th of November and put the spotlight on public housing this Victorian state election. Use Victoria's stamp duty revenue approximately Six billion dollars plus per year for public housing. House one million Victorians by 2029. Public housing, everybody's business. Join us. Bring tea, bring coffee, bring cakes, bring food, bring your musical instruments, and most importantly of all, bring yourself and your sleeping bag. We broadcasting live from the steps of the Victorian Parliament House in support of Defend and Extend Public Housing's 10-day vigil. Public housing, everybody's business. Join the Anarchist World this week at Parliament House, 10am to 11am, on two Wednesdays, the 14th and 21st of November. And yes, there is more. Also join Talk Back With Attitude at Parliament House, 10 to 11 a.m. Thursday the 15th and the 22nd of November. Make public housing a significant issue for the forthcoming state election. Join us for these live broadcasts on the steps of the Victorian Parliament House. Welcome back to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. We're going to go to a Vox Pop now because today is Melbourne Cup Day. Um, I'm sure that that's why we have like one listener at the moment. 
George and I hit the streets of Melbourne on Saturday. Um, and I just want to say we talked to as many people as we could find who were willing to speak to us. Um, and we asked open-ended questions and the responses really came out all kind of skewed in one way. Um, and just in the interest of Media Watch not getting on our back, not that they would, but, um, yeah, I think it's, uh, it's, it's quite obvious what people think of Melbourne Cup Day. Also, language warning, I forgot to bleep out a swear word. Sorry to everybody who hears it. Uh, animal doesn't have a voice to consent yeah. to anything like that, yeah. so we should just consent, leave them yeah. alone. They're peaceful beings. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think first off, you know, horses should be able to run free on their own terms. As soon as you create an industry that's all about money, that's when, you know, they can get away with, like, hurting the animals and stuff, which isn't good. And um, I think it's really unfair. Yeah. I think there's enough animal exploitation as it is when it comes to agriculture and the, the meat industry. Um, and I feel like then using horses and animals for entertainment is just over exploitation. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's gross. Yeah. I think it's a food that's kind of been ingrained into the Australian culture for a very long time. Yeah. Like, I think growing up as a kid, you don't really understand what the whole thing is. Like, you're like, oh, it's just horse racing. And then I think once you're older and you kind of educated a bit more about the situation, you're like, it's actually kind of a form of animal cruelty, what we're doing. So I think it's really hard to kind of allow people to look at it from both sides because some people are so one-sided about it. So I think that, like, Australia needs to acknowledge that there's two sides to the story and whether or not what side you want to sit on, like, that's up to you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. I think millennials are starting to see that. I 100%. Like, I was actually talking to this with my sister because she actually wants to study about animals and all that. So she's like, have you ever thought about it as, like, animal cruelty? And I was just like, well, no, I've never really thought about it that way because I've just kind of accepted it as an event that, like, people just go to because it's Australian. That's what Australians do. Because uh, coming from my family where we immigrated from another country, so we're just kind of doing what everybody else is doing because that's Australian. So I don't think until you're educated about the situation that you'll really know what you're getting yourself involved in. I mean, Melbourne has so many unnecessary days off, to be honest. We have a grand final day off for not even the actual game, just like for the parade. So, I mean, I just view it as like another unnecessary day off, to be honest. I think I find it kind of interesting because it just reflects about it reflects how easily humans are how easily they're manipulative in terms of like you know socially we've been brought up to accept horse racing and just see it as like a sport even though it's not a sport culture around it like people dressing up and drinking alcohol that's why I feel like a lot of people go it's like oh an event yeah it's like they realize that like drink tomorrow yeah so first of all my name's Tom I Personally, I'm not a fan of Cup Day. Um, I've been raised in Melbourne, uh, lived all my life. I think it's it's not really good for the welfare of horses and for animals. I think it's pretty cruel. Um, I don't I don't really think that it represents Melbourne for what it really is. I think that horses aren't meant to be raced. 
and they're meant to be loved and that's my opinion on it really. So yeah. Yeah. And so then flowing from that, what are your thoughts on us all getting a day off work in honour of A Um, I really don't believe in a day off for Cup Day, honestly. I'd rather it be taken away completely. I think that it should be just a normal regular day. Um, and I think that public holidays are meant to be for more important things for, you know, when, especially in Christmas, you know, families come together, people come together, getting time off for that. Um, the new year as well, it's probably most important, but something as little as, you know, seeing horses race and especially the profits that go to, you know, all the bookies, especially, you know, with gambling addictions and things like that. I think it's, it's pretty unethical, it's immoral and, and I think that the current government, Victoria, is nothing about it. And, um, yeah, that's why I'll be voting for the current government in the next election. So. Yeah. I don't think we have a right to choose that an animal's cruelty is for entertainment. I think we forget that it's about the racing so much because they're just... They're just, like, oh, going for the fashion and, like, the food and wine and, like you know, whatever channel's covering it and famous people being there. Like, it, it's, it, it's like it, it covers up all the, all the other stuff. If it was just a race and people went and they were, like, analysing, like, horses only, then, then it'd be much more noticeable how cruel it is, I, I reckon. Yeah. I, like, to start off with, it was just horse racing. They didn't have fashion shows or anything, and I think people started to bring up this whole this is animal cruelty, and so I guess, like, to, like, to kind of, like, cover that up, they'd be like, okay, let's, like, chuck a fashion show on, let's chuck a kid's day out, family day out event. Yeah. So it's kind of like... Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it normalises it. It does. Yeah. People just start to accept it now, so... never been to the race, but I, I guess sometimes I've had, like, a family family friend barbecue sort of like because we have a day off but it's not really centered around the race um, I guess at school and stuff they used to be like tipping on best like whatever horse you thought would win just like encouraging gambling a little bit early I reckon yeah 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 and because if they had a voice and they said you know yep race me then sure let's yeah, do it but you know because I think like a, a lot of like the arguments they might say oh horses they're made to run and everything it's like yeah their bodies are built you know they can run and everything they're really good at it but it's more so if you know you take them out for run yourself you don't race them that's when it gets um um to, to like animal cruelty and stuff because that's when you start exploiting in them and stuff so Especially yeah because so much fucking money is made yeah. out of it like yeah. it's all about it's money involved in money yeah. and it's tied up in politics yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I and I also hate how gambling's a big part of it yeah, as well money, because because especially people that are trying to like um uh, that have like been addicted to it and they're trying to like recover from it it's all in the like all in the TV ads it's all there like in your face and it's really like it'd be difficult for them as well like um goddamn holiday for yeah for gambling yeah that's and basically. people are always like oh but I get to dress up and like wear a fancy hat whatever they're called a fascinator or something <laughs> and I'm just like dude there's there's like 364 days yeah. where you can dress up as well like why use this as an, as an excuse like it's just stupid like and Cup Day is all about profit, it's all about money. Um, there's no glamour to it, absolutely no glamour, and it's also, it's, it's, it's really vile seeing people getting intoxicated, people getting drunk, um, alcohol, 
all those addictions fueled together for Cup Day, it's it's just yeah, disgusts me. Yeah. yeah, it makes me sad, and yeah, I really hope one day that it does get changed and it does really get removed. Are you 18 years and over? Have you been stopped by a Victorian police officer or protective service officer in the last 10 years? Would you like to contribute to research that aims to inform law reform and litigation strategies to prevent over-policing? Go to policestopsurvey.online for more information and to take part. That's policestopsurvey.online, a 3CR supporter. Want to support 3CR's diverse and independent voices? Well, it's not too late, and we still need your support. Donate now by calling 9419 8377 or donate online at www.3cr.org.au or post us a cheque or money order to Post Office Box 1277, Collingwood 3066. Fight for your mic. Celebrate International Day of People with Disability at the Victorian Disability Sport and Recreation Festival. With over 30 exhibitors and three activity zones, come and try different inclusive sports, meet Paralympians and watch the AFL Wheelchair Challenge. This is a free, accessible, family-friendly event. Monday the 3rd of December from 10 till 3pm at Crown River Walk. For more information, visit dsr.org.au. A 3CR supporter. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. Going to an interview now with dancer Bailey Rose about the Tilled um, International Film Festival which is Melbourne's only uh, trans and gender diverse film festival and it will be held this week and it's been running since 2014. It's curated and produced entirely by volunteers uh, with collaborative involvement across all areas and there are only a handful of festivals of this kind internationally so it's pretty cool. So <clears throat> on to Belly Rose. There's always a place for you in this world. Sometimes we just need a little help finding our people. Dancer Belly Rose began exploring her gender identity and the way our bodies are governed by society through choreography. As a young gender non-conforming trans woman of colour, Belly Rose has recently choreographed a piece that encapsulates the idea of gender, sex and love on ABC iView. She is driven by her experiences and the injustice she and her friends go through as young queer people navigating through life. Um, the show Lou Wall's Drag Race, she... Um, she made in Fringe Festival won the award for Best Emerging Artists, uh, where Bailey Rose's saucy strip tease elicits howls and cheers from the sold-out crowd that was re um, reported on by The Age. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, Bailey Rose. Thank you for having me. <laughs> so can you tell us a little bit about the documentary series Unboxed that will be screened at the film festival? Of course. So um, Unboxed is all about 
really unboxing what it means to be an artist and the queerness that we all artists in the documentary series encapsulate. Um, I'm a trans woman of colour, as my artist bio suggests. I mean, <laughs> actually mentions. Oh, yep. my God. <laughs> it's very early in the morning. <laughs> yes, that's um, fair. Um, so it's how I made a piece really encapsulating the dance industry and society and how there's such a binary in both of these worlds. Mm. And is that what Unboxed is about, kind of challenging that binary? Yes, definitely. It's about unboxing what gender means and what art means to each of the artists in the documentary series. Mm. And can you tell us a bit more about how that works in your particular um, place in that series? How you unpack that? Yes, of course. So uh, my piece started out as a pas de trois, which is a coupling of three. And it was two cis men holding up a cis female, and she was the encapsulated, encapsulated beauty of the dance industry and society. She was blonde and skinny, and the two guys were holding them up, and it was they were it was a metaphor for society and dan- the dance culture, mm. which is very relevant and very prevalent. I should make I should say, yeah, right I th- now. Um, mm. Yeah, I was reading uh, I think an article um, that uh, you were in on the ABC, which was talking about your work and maybe how you challenge ideas around femininity. Is that also kind of a part of this documentary as well? Sorry. That that your work kind of explores or challenges ideas around femininity and what that means? Yes. Yes, most definitely. Um, I really try and push the binary and what gender looks like and what femininity looks like. Um, it starts as a pas de trois, but ends up as a pas de court, a coupling of four. It's when I come into the mix and I really break up this stereotype. Um with my bashful movement and my strong masculine body and um, it's just it's very nuanced I guess mm, and that yeah. seems yeah that seems really cool to kind of explore these issues yeah. through um, through dance and, and movement mm. and so I'm having a lot sorry yeah <laughs> I was just having a lot of fun um, mixing it up and showing the dance world that there is more to dancing than the binary. Yeah, and so in so in um, dance culture, is that kind of a a bit of an issue in terms of the kinds of performances that you're allowed to do in yeah. that space? Um, it is very old school the dance, which is really weird um, to me because dance is so queer in itself and can be so campy or can be so, can really break the boundaries of what we see day to day because what us dancers do is not normal. We don't, not everyone throws their leg up 
to like meet the head and contort the body into these weird shapes and it's just it baffles me why we don't have more trans trans and gender diverse people in the dance community especially in the forefront of the dance community mm. and do you think that that's changing now is that kind of growing in terms of rep- representation yeah the more um trans people and gender diverse people come out and step up and push to be in the forefront of the dance community, that's when um, we get more visibility and it continues to shift and change and people start talking about transness and gender diversity and hopefully we can start seeing more people in companies like the Sydney Dance Company and ABC, ABC, um, the Australian Ballet. Um, it would be wild to have more beautiful trans people and gender diverse people creating art and contemporary work that the mainstream society can view and can see because we create beautiful pieces and we have stories that have not been heard for a very long time and we have something to offer the community it's i think it's think it's time for us to be seen and to be heard mm, i couldn't agree more with that um and also in terms of rep- representation what does it mean to you to have festivals like tilde which showcase the work of trans and gen- gender diverse filmmakers and also trans and gender diverse content i love it i can't believe there is such a beautiful festival that is showcasing how beautiful we all are, how powerful and how creative and how talented us trans and gender diverse people are. It's it's wild to see our stories up there being seen, people talking about it, let alone having a film festival about it. Uh, it just blows my mind. Mm. I'm so happy to be a part of something so beautiful yeah and I, I guess for people with a shared identity being able to go and see something like this festival would be really empowering yeah. and important exactly and so the Unbox series will be screened this Friday the 9th of November at 7pm and there's also a Q&A afterwards what can people expect to see there well it'll be myself and another person from the Unbox documentary and the mastermind uh, director and one of the producers um, Sam Matthews she'll be there I think she's yeah yeah she will be there Um, and we'll be talking about more things about Unbox such as what we did to get our creative juices flowing how we worked the time frame I'll be asking questions to Sam about how did you end up doing this? Because I'm actually very curious (laughs) having an art grant and about trans people on ABC. Like, that's wild. I'm just going to be like, Sam, how did you do it? What magic did you create, you beautiful human being? (laughs) Um, So it'll just be a beautiful kiki. We're going to all have fun. It won't be too serious. Or it can be, but we'll make it lighthearted. But um, it'll be a lot of fun. I can 
definitely tell you that much. Yeah, it sounds like it. It sounds like it's going to be fantastic. And it's at the Footscray Community Arts Centre, which is such a great um, event space. Yeah. Um, and so tickets are available on the door or at the website tildmelbourne.com. Thank you so much for your time this morning, Belly Rose. No worries. Thank you so much for having me. Cheers. Have a good day. Celebrate International Day of People with Disability at the Victorian Disability Sport and Recreation Festival. With over 30 exhibitors and three activity zones, come and try different inclusive sports, meet Paralympians and watch the AFL Wheelchair Challenge. This is a free, accessible, family-friendly event. Monday the 3rd of December from 10 till 3pm at Crown River Walk. For more information, visit dsr.org.au. A 3CR supporter. Never do that, Freddie. Excellent. We're planning such a good time with you, Freddie. Come to the screening of Bohemian Rhapsody on Thursday, November the 8th from 6.30pm at Palace Westgarth Cinemas and have a real good time with Freddie Mercury and Queen. Tickets are 25 full. $20 concession online at 3cr.org.au or from the station, 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. You can also call 9419 8377 during business hours. All funds raised go to keeping 3CR on air. Stop me now. If you want to have a good We are joined live in the studio. I'm very excited. Um, this is a special Melbourne Cup treat. Um, I don't know if you're getting the vibes, listeners, but we're not super huge fans of the cup <laughs> in this room. Um, and so we're joined in the studio by Madison Griffiths, who is a writer, an artist, and a poet, whose work has been published in Vice, SBS, Overland, Daily Life, Mianjin, and more. She's also an online editor at a literary youth journal, VoiceWorks. And in 2016, her article, I Don't Eat Meat Because I'm a Feminist, for the Sydney Morning Herald, was shortlisted for the Voiceless Media Awards in Sydney, and also copped quite a lot of online attention. Ooh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, her work revolves predominantly around issues concerning women, animals, race, and mental illness. So I couldn't think of anybody better to join us in the studio today. Thanks Thank for coming you. in. No problem. Thanks for having me. Ooh. So... This article, you wrote it, you don't eat meat because you're a feminist. Mm -hmm. Love it. I didn't actually come up with that title. That was them. Ah. (laughs) When I started receiving a bit of hate, I was like, ah, there must be a really inflammatory title attached to that. They tend to do that. They do. (laughs) Um, So what is the link between feminism and veganism for you? Um, I think broadly all systems of oppression are synonymous in terms of their power relationship. Um, there involves an oppressor and the oppressed, and there is this, this element of subjugation and, and um, exploitation associated or in, intrinsically linked in those relationships. Um, for me, the, 
the relationship I have with my body um, and the relationship I see a lot of um, marginalised folk have with their bodies felt very pertinent to um, the way that animals' bodies are exploited for various reasons. Um, when I looked into it a little bit more, I found even through um, vegan organisations like PETA uh, to raise awareness for, um, to show, I guess, the ridiculousness of eating meat, they would portion off pictures of Pamela Anderson's body like mm. they would uh, a cow. So that felt just as problematic, and I found this vegan strip club that said the, the meat is on the poles, not on the plates. So they just wow. felt so, yeah, I remember thinking, like, this isn't good enough. This mm. is this is really not good enough. Um, and also the the various ways that many different types of animals experience oppression compared to many different types of women and marginalised folk. Mm. Um, uh, the you know the notion of the domesticated pet being kind of butchered into this um, short nosed cute thing, and then you look at the amount of money that goes into um, similar industries when it comes to women. Yeah. Um, it did feel very. It felt like this light bulb moment for me. Um, and my partner um, had sort of introduced me to Carol Adams as well, who wrote book. The Sexual Politics of Meat, which is incredible, mm. um, and I, I definitely urge everybody to give it a read. Yeah, yeah, it's phenomenal. Yeah. Um, it is interesting, isn't it? Once you see that link, I don't think you can unsee it. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and I like what, you, what you're talking about there about how domesticated animals are kind of... Um, quote-unquote perfected Mm. for human consumption and in that same way women are perfected quote-unquote for male consumption and there's also this really strange uh idea that you can't hurt these animals because you love them Mm. and you love them because of the the what you've created out of them i mean you see a lot of french bulldog owners that are incredibly loving toward their their dogs who can't breathe yeah who can't breathe and it's this this interesting um standard by which we assess relationships and I think that those same standards are prescribed onto women um, Mm. for sure. So speaking of, Mm. um, violence against women has remained at extraordinarily high levels despite all of this focus on it and talk about it and Royal Commission and studies and all of that Um, but we still don't see abusive relationships portrayed in the mainstream media Um, The Mm -hmm. discussion of sexual abuse and sexual violence in relationships isn't discussed nearly as much as those instances where it's a stranger in a public public space, Mm. like Jill Ma, Eurydice Dixon, those types of things. Um, And we also still see that desirable victim trope trotted out. Um, So we're kind of in a space where violence is everywhere, Mm -hmm. but it's also largely hidden or given other names or there's misdirection going on. Um, and I find it personally frustrating as a vegan as well to see those tactics deployed when it comes to the consumption of animal products. Mm. And I wondered what your thoughts are about this cognitive dissonance that we can see in so many spaces. Totally. I think this is such a great question. Um, <laughs> and it's something that I don't think is afforded, as in the, the concepts and the language we use to decide what is violent um, and what is not violent isn't afforded enough airtime because it does, I guess, construct how we make sense of... Um, our surroundings and I think a lot of the reasons why violence is so pervasive um, and why these sort of types of violence rarely get airtime is because of these culturally prescribed notions of innocence um, and worth and so what makes Jill Maher and Eurydice Dixon's death so catastrophic had a lot to do with their presumed innocence 
um, their whiteness, the notion of them being essentially hunted by this sort of lone wolf archetype, mm. um, made their vulnerability really heartbreaking mm. um, publicly. They were good and they were innocent, they were unassuming. Um, but for many survivors of domestic violence, there is this idea that they've positioned themselves in these environments, that the domestic space where women are routinely subjugated and violently killed um, is fine and good. Um, and if it's not, then that's that's because of her fault. Mm. And I even think that in regards to the language, um, even the terms domestic violence and interpersonal violence, it's, it, it sound, sounds like it sort of grows and flourishes within this relationship which is there's two parties in a relationship. So even then it doesn't, mm. the violence seems shared and seems, I just find that really absurd and frustrating. Yeah, that's interesting. I've never thought of it like that. Yeah, and I mean the same, uh, I went to a screening of Dominion um, on Saturday night and the same could be said for um, why we use the word meat instead of animals and poultry instead of chickens, um, beef instead of... You, like, it's viol- uh, language is so essential. Mm. And using those terms like domestic violence and, you know, and that's a very, very intense critique of the term, but use, using these, these terms that um, do sort of aso- associate the victim with the act mm. kind of robs the, the victim of consent as well. Like, yeah... Using the word poultry instead of chicken does assume that this chicken has, I guess, in some ways, subscribed to the notion that they are poultry. They are food. <laughs> yeah. That it, it sounds absurd, but it's it's no, so it's, yeah. Yeah, and and I guess not naming it. Mm. Oh, okay, you've given me a lot to think about. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not gonna unpack that. Well, I find when you say to someone that um, <clears throat> does eat animals, also you eat animals instead of eating meat, it does mm. it just sounds so much more visceral. Like it's yeah, it it it's yeah, it's a really kind of yucky thing to to sit with, I guess. Yeah, yeah, and that's all it is. Very interesting. I actually I was listening to um a podcast on the weekend um, of Fifth Estate of the Wheeler Centre and Sally oh, Warhoft yeah. was interviewing Christine Nixon and some police um, crime writer and they were talking about the change in language from domestic, um, just a domestic, mm. which used to be the name for a family violence incident. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and how important it's been linguistically for Victoria Police to have that language change. Totally. And how it's changed how they look at family violence. Amazing. Um, But it is interesting that we do still have a long way to go um, with that language change. Yeah, Mm. yeah, absolutely. And I really liked this in your article. I thought it was really interesting. Um, You talked about the gendered nature of food consumption in Western society. um, Mm. And so then electing to frame your dietary choices solely around ethics outside of this gendered nature Mm. um, was kind of a reclamation and a protest for you. Yeah, I... um I actually recently I noticed Carol Adams um, has initiated this thing called Protest Kitchen, mm. um, and she speaks about ways to to protest inequality and in, uh, in a Trump era through the kitchen, through this sort of reclamation of this domestic space for um, for women. Um, and I sort of had this this thought when I was writing this article. I just I remember when I first became vegetarian. There was I just viewed food so differently. Mm. I didn't, I mean, I didn't view it through this sort of dietary lens or this um, calorie counting perspective. It was very much there's food I can and can't eat, and that's because of the hurt 
it prescribes or, or affords to others. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just thought that was really, I didn't sort of realize at the time, but afterwards I thought this is a really exciting space to be in mm-hmm. where I don't, I'm, I'm not sort of um, oppressing my body through food and I'm not oppressing the bodies of, of animals through food. Um, it just felt like this sort of flawless revelation of like, mm-hmm. oh, great, now I can actually just eat. Yeah. Um, and that's great, and that's really interesting. Eating, a lot of women can't just eat. Um, there's no, there's so many gendered ways to eat and to make sense of food, so that was really exciting for me. Mm. Yeah. And I do think, um, not to make it all about men, but no. I do think for male vegans, um, removing themselves of that, um, that association between meat and masculinity um, can be quite, oh, I, you know, I've dated vegans and they've found it quite empowering. To, Absolutely. Yeah. It is interesting, um, The again, look, bringing up the PETA campaigns, you looked at these, when they try to encourage male vegans or men to join the movement, they use these sort of absurd um, images of male, like, bodybuilders being like, he's vegan. You think, oh, my gosh. It's this desperation to hold on to masculinity to be like, mm. it, it's it's quite interesting. Um, so I do think there is something feminizing about the idea of, of, mm. <laughs> of eating, yeah, not eating animals. Um, so I do just, oh, we're running out of time. God, I hate this. Um, <laughs> so I do want to touch on this one, though, because I do mm. think it's very important. Um There are a lot of ongoing discussions in the public sphere about veganism being culturally inappropriate for many people, about it being a white feminist type of behaviour, about it being a sign of privilege, all those sorts of things. What are your thoughts on this? I I absolutely agree. Um, I think whiteness needs to be interrogated at every turn. Mm. I think whiteness pervades a lot of... um, uh, you know, whiteness is so loud and unapologetic, and there are many, many white vegans who I believe are incredibly ignorant to when it comes to the nuances of animal animal liberation. Um, I could discuss this forever, <laughs> but I I want to make it known that I think veganism is a fantastic way to protest conventionally white ways of land usage um, and animal usage. Like the animal agricultural industry is this sort of white cesspool of hurt. Um, it's the product of masculine wow. white claim. Yeah. <laughs> Um, But in saying this, veganism needs to be accessible and critical of itself in the same way that, you know, the way whiteness pervades sort of queer liberation and whiteness pervades feminism. It needs to be self-critical because whiteness is so obvious and so um, unapologetic, like I said before. But animals don't need to suffer for that. Animals shouldn't suffer for that. They're the real, they're they're the victims in this Mm. in the same way that um, when white feminists rear their ugly head, um, black women shouldn't have to apologise on their behalf. It should be up to them to, to critically analyse their behaviour. Mm. Um, so, yeah, by protesting veganism in general, by claiming that it is this sort of white conquest, which often it is, um, would be to... Uh, it's my, quite misguided, in my opinion. It's hurting animals rather than, yeah, creating mm. change. Mm. Mm. I like that. <laughs> um, and so we might just um, bring it home with yes. a bit of your personal history. Bring you grew up home. on a racehorse farm. I did. How did that... Yeah. So now you're a vegan. Yep. What are your thoughts on everything? everything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so I grew up... Everyone in my family works in racing. Um, I My dad finished school at 14 and everyone else sort of did. They left school and they moved to the racetrack. Mm. Um, so I grew up on the racehorse farm until I was about 19. And, and I honestly, what was so odd was that I had no idea 
I mean, I just saw mm. this world of horses and happiness mm. and 40 horses in my backyard. And, you know, I just had absolutely no idea that there was this dark side. And it was only when I went to university and I, I did a unit called The Ethics of Killing and I started learning about racing. And it was this really absurd relationship to the hurt because I didn't want to believe it. Mm. Um, in saying that, my, my dad runs a small stable comparatively with that of other horse trainers. So... Um, it's, it's funny that I always, I always have to bring it back to defending my family. And I know that I wouldn't have this response if I wasn't involved with racing. And I think that that's, that's, um, proof enough. If I, yeah. Mm. My parents may be the exception to the rule, but the rule is horrific. Mm. And the rule still stands. And that's when you know that there's something deeply wrong. Um, but I, I, I have to be very careful, um, on Facebook and, and on these sort of domains. Mm. Um, my parents are very open to my beliefs, though. They're incredibly understanding about it. Um, and there's been a lot of initiatives through them, like my mum now runs a rehoming, um, initiative mm. through racing. So not one of the horses that comes through my dad's stables will end up ever slaughtered or, uh, Oh, this, <laughs> woo! <laughs> Better my dad's horses. That's not what I'm saying at all. Um, but I just, yeah, yeah, yeah. The rule still stands and the rule is horrific and horse racing is classist and it is sexist and it is incredibly violent. Mm. Um, and I, I wish I could amend a lot of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is a perfect note to end on. Thank, Thank you, you so very much for joining us this morning, Madison Griffiths. Follow her on Twitter and um, I believe Instagram. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and that amazing track that you just heard was from Alice Sky, Friends with Feelings. And in the studio today, we have an incredible guest, a phenomenal human being, Chantal Wenterall. You know, we normally, you know, we normally have these like, where's the sound effects? I wanted to do the clapping sound effects because you deserve that. Oh my goodness. Did I? Hang on a sec. Just working. Okay, perfect. I had to make sure that everyone could hear your beautiful voice. Okay, so Chantal Weatherall is the producer and presenter of Hey Auntie podcast, Fireside Chats with Black Women, Femmes and Non-Binary Siblings Who've Been There a sister of British, Belizean heritage and West African ancestry, living as a grateful guest on Kulin land for almost 10 years, a law grad with an ongoing career in HR, born of a lifelong passion for understanding people. My God, you are incredible. <gasps> what can't you do that breakfast, Chantal? Holy mackerel. Can I, <laughs> can I ask you to just be my herald in life? I, I'm more than happy for you to put me in a box and pop out whenever you need it. Oh, that, is, that is the most delightful introduction. Thank you, you, you are, so much. No, sis, you, this is you. You did this. I wish I could have taken credit for it, but I can't. Um, can you tell us about Hey Auntie? My pleasure, yes. So Hey Auntie is a... My little passion project, really. It's a podcast um, that came about because, you know, I am getting to that age now where uh, handsome young men are interacting with me in an extremely polite way that indicated that they saw me more as a maternal figure. <laughs> oh, <laughs> dang. Um, but it also made me reflect because... And an upside of that is I've got this beautiful network of um, sisters and I have access to such amazing wisdom and lessons and support. And I reflected back um, 
to my younger years and to occasions when I sorely needed that type of guidance um, as I was going through the world and dealing with uh, the challenges that we face as women, as black women especially, and really facing most of them alone. Mm. And I thought, you kind of get the knowledge a little bit too late. Um, And so I thought, what if we could fast forward that for younger people or any other woman facing the same old problems and thinking they're alone um, by creating a little space for black women to come together, be really vulnerable and honest, and just share stories. And we do that by asking questions each episode that I wish I could have asked an auntie Mm. when I was younger. And we use the idea of aunties because they unite pretty much all um, culturally diverse people, let alone black people. Mm. So it immediately gives us a connecting factor and brings us all to the table. Mm. Um, And so we ask those questions. But unlike your real aunties, we don't... uh, tell you you've gained a lot of weight, <laughs> ask you why you're not married yet, or give you aggressive and overbearing uh, advice. No, we share our stories mm-hmm. and we let people uh, draw their own conclusions. Mm. And, I, and I, love, I love the way you even set it out. Um, the whole, uh, you know, at the start of every episode, it's like, hi, welcome, come in, have have a tea. So you're creating this very, not just welcoming atmosphere, but it's so just very loving. Like you want to tune in, you want to know what the aunties have to say. And I like that you've made an important point where you say um, that it's not going to explain racism. Why did you want to make that like a central point? Well, because no matter what platform we seem to find for ourselves as women of colour, they are so often hijacked into being conversations which take us out of the centre and make us teachers for other people. Um, I feel like within our own community, that ship has sailed and I probably didn't intend the pun, but it's there, Mm. so take it. Um, You know, we know that racism is a fact of life, um, and we have to continue to live despite that. Mm. We've got to have jobs, we've got to find booze, we've got to work out what the best way is to do our hair for summer, and we've got to face um, the big and small problems of life, and continually talking about racism in isolation is really a distraction that stops us from sharing the the wonderful lessons that we've learned about how to deal with the fullness of life. Beautiful, beautiful. And one of the, one of my favorite series, because it's, it's done in, like, can you, can you, can you describe the setup, uh, the setup of Hey Auntie? Sure. So, One of the really important things about Hey Auntie for me was that we show that there is, um, my tagline is, millions of ways to be 
ways to be a magical black woman. And I wanted to show that there is a diversity of views on each subject and a diversity of experience. But because we're such fantastic conversationalists, having um, multiple interviews or multiple people on one episode, I thought would diminish from really soaking up the character of one auntie. So we have um, three part episodes. So I'll set out the question and then speak to three different aunties in three parts. So uh, for the episode on code switching, I got to speak with uh, wonderful Namilla Benson. I got to speak with wonderful established elder, Auntie Sana Balai. And my heart smiles just saying her name. And I got to speak with the wonderful Rudy Bremer. And they have completely different cultural backgrounds, life experience, um, different generations. Um, and what they had to contribute um, would, would add something different for different people listening. But also there is a beauty in seeing the thread that mm. goes between them. Right. And code switching. For those who don't know, can you tell us what that is and how it impacts our livelihood? Oh, code switching has become a real hot topic at the moment. And I think that that's a beautiful sign. Um, Code switching is the way that people of color and marginalized people generally have learned how to diminish the outward signs of their difference in order to move smoothly and safely in dominant culture settings. So a really prevalent setting for uh, code switching is in the workplace um, or in your educational institution. But unfortunately, it's so insidious and it is bred into us so early by our parents and elders who want us to basically be safe that it impacts people everywhere. On the episode, my heart broke. Um, as Namilla shared a story of her little baby boy Mm. who's in primary school um, having his afro hair wet by a photographer for the school photos and plastered down to his head and that is how early the messages start going into us that you must diminish the outward signs of your ethnicity Um, code switching is not having a work persona or not being loud and obnoxious when you're in um, settings where it's inappropriate. Code switching is literally filing off the edges of your personhood in order to fit into the tiny bit of space allowed for you. Mm. When I think about it, I think of it as jamming your feet into shoes that are too small and shuffling around in the world all day thinking you're cute. And then when you get home, you take them off and you feed a mango girl, you've got corns. It's a bad situation. And that's a lighthearted way of trying to sort of visualize for people the long-term impact of having to cram yourself into such a small, acceptable spot of who you can be as a black woman and the fatiguing impact that has on you. And I love that we're having conversations about this now. I love that we're seeing this um, not as a given, not as a necessity, actually evaluating Yeah, this can be a skill, Mm -hmm. and I know that I personally have a lot of privilege because there are people who don't have the choice or the opportunity to code switch because Mm -hmm. they don't grow up with this fluency 
Um, I feel like for me it has been a double-edged sword. I grew up in a majority white setting from an early age. That is what has equipped me with this voice that makes delivery drivers think that um, they come to the wrong house when I <laughs> greet them at the door. Or, you know, people uh, who I speak to at work on the phone who come into meetings with me have a little, ooh, <laughs> mm. she's black moment. Mm. Um, and there are um, painful senses of loss around that, to be honest, because I know that there are things that I've lost. When I go home and I'm around my family, I can't speak our patois. Mm-hmm. And that's one. That's what one of the sisters, I've forgotten her name, I do apologise, but she's a broadcaster. Ooh, Rudy. Yeah. She spoke some powerful truth. Absolutely. And she was saying how hard it was for her when she, went, when she goes back to community and having to make that switch. And, God, what is that like to constantly not exist in one body? It was so beautiful on so many levels to hear her say that, partly because um, she is an Aboriginal woman living in Australia and working in a culturally uh, responsive setting. However, even with all of that taken into account, she has been trained professionally to have a professional voice. And I think we can all understand what a professional, authoritative voice sounds like Mm -hmm. um, to the people who are telling her this. And what that means is don't speak in a way that sounds black or you won't have authority. Don't speak in the way that you speak to your family or the way that your, your aunties and your uncles speak. Now, there is so much wrong with that message, but ultimately we're faced with this choice of do we fight the system from the outside or do we just play the game and get inside and try and change um, when we're in there? And she has become um, incredibly adept at, uh, what did she say, Um, tone matching Mm -hmm. her guests and even her family because the next layer of it is once you've learned how to speak this other language, can you go home again? Right, because it gets yeah. Because to to constantly have to constantly be thinking about how you speak, how you articulate, you don't have space for anything else, let alone your own culture. Um, okay, so I hate to do this, as as Lauren was saying, um, to borrow a quote, but. Um, Final question, how can people listen? This is like a three-part three, three part question. I love it. One, how can people listen to Hey Auntie? Can people pitch stories to you? And do you also want to tell us about the live show that you have coming up? Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. So people can listen to Hey Auntie on iTunes if they look up Hey Auntie. Um, hey, A-U-N-T-Y, two separate words, exclamation mark at the end. Please like and subscribe. Please comment. Please review. And please share it with your networks. It's really important 
for the exciting plans that we have coming up, that people can see that there is an audience for this, that we don't always have to be a mirror, that sometimes we can be a window, Mm -hmm. um, that we can speak about our specific stories and people do want to hear. Um, You absolutely can pitch stories. Please follow Hey Auntie Pod on Instagram. That's the best way to keep in touch with everything we're doing. And you can also uh, use our contact form on our website, heyauntiepod.com, to send any questions. Look, we can't just keep working through my personal problems. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And also show your support. Let me know you're out there. Show up. If you feel like this is resonating with you, both online and in person, come along to our amazing launch party and listening party that we're having on the 5th of December at AcmeX. I am so excited. We're going to be recording a live show that evening. You're going to have an opportunity to have a Q&A with the aunties. Um, we're going to have an amazing announcement about big things coming up next year. And we're going to have so many opportunities for you to network, meet other people in the community with shared interest to you please come along show us that you're listening thank you so much queen pleasure what happened at the new orleans (laughs) bitch i'm back i'm popular the man Corny with that Illuminati mess. Paparazzi, catch my fly and my cocky fresh. I'm so reckless when I rock my Givenchy dress. I'm so possessive, so I rock his rock necklaces. My daddy, Alabama. Mama, Louisiana. You mix that Negro with that Creole, make a Texas Bama. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR with Ayan, George, Lauren and myself, Anya. So I went to this event last week called Queer Stories, which featured some incredible storytelling by these ridiculously talented queer people. Um, I also found out that Queer Stories um, is also a book and a podcast, and I'm still buzzing from it. It was incredible. Anyway, joining us over the phone today to talk about it is Maeve Marston, and she's the brains behind it. Maeve Marston is a writer, producer, and theater maker who works across comedy, cabaret, live music, and storytelling. As an opinion writer, her work has appeared in the Sydney Morning Herald, The Guardian, Junkie, ABC Online, SBS Online, Arts Hub, Daily Review, Archer Magazine, and Audrey Journal. She's also incredibly funny and warm, and I'm just so, so excited for this interview. Thank you so much for joining us today, Maeve. Thanks for having me. I'm very kind introduction. <laughs> um, for our listeners who aren't familiar with Queer Stories, could you briefly explain what it's all about? Yeah, so Queer Stories, in its like most basic description, it's a storytelling night that features LGBTQI plus storytellers. So I ask six people each month, and I do them in a few different locations, so monthly in Sydney and Melbourne, and then twice a year in Brisbane. Um, I say to them, you've got 10 minutes to tell a story from your life, mm. um, but don't make it your coming out story, and don't make it about equal marriage, mm. <laughs> because you hear a lot about that. Mm. So I ask people to tell an unexpected story, or the stories that they're not always asked to tell, um, and each night, yeah, 
audience members come and listen to these different stories mm. um, told from this personal perspective, and it's often very funny and sometimes heartbreaking and, you know, a real mix. Yeah, story. yeah. it was a roller coaster of emotions last week for sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, how did Queer Stories begin? What was the inspiration behind it? Um, I was running a program called Late Night Library for the City of Sydney, which was sort of arts events in libraries after dark, mm-hmm. where they'd get emerging artists to curate different seasons. And I had King's Cross Library, which is the heart of Sydney's uh, traditionally gay district, perhaps less so now. Um, and so I was tr- coming up with different concepts and I was like oh queer stories queer history that'll be interesting <laughs> and um, and I, I did one of them there and people just kept coming to them they kept filling up and I thought I could make this more regular and I could do it in a bigger space and so I it sort of graduated to Giant Dwarf which is a comedy venue in Sydney mm. and I started running them there monthly at the start of last year and they just they fill up every month and so I've kept doing it and um, I'm an independent artist as you said and so when something works, I do more of it. Um, mm. So I started doing it in other places and pitched the book and put the stories on the podcast. And so I kind of follow the audience. If, if the audience keep wanting more of them, I do more of them. Mm. And it's been two plus years since the um, inception of Queer Stories. And mm. since that time, we've gone through the marriage plebiscite. We're fighting discrimination mm. against queer teachers and students, the leak of the, the Ruddock Report, etc. Um, talk to me about the journey of Queer Stories and how it's changed over this time, if it has. Yeah, I mean, I think that the individual events kind of respond to the politics of the day, whatever's happening. I noticed that during the website, a lot of the stories became a bit more serious or reflective, but it's sort of not, it doesn't, I don't change the format and I don't kind of adapt to that. I don't, I'm a political person, but I don't want the events to feel like a rally or, or a chance for campaigning because it was always meant to be about community and storytelling mm-hmm. and the kind of more intimate and personal storytelling. So if people submit stories to me that are kind of like, spoken opinion pieces, I go back to them and I'm like, no, no, like, dig a little deeper and, and make it more personal mm-hmm. um, and reflective. So, that, so yeah, didn't, I, I try not to have it adapt directly to those political shifts, but of course people end up referencing them or people are being impacted by them and that's reflected in the stories they tell. Mm. And I guess, yeah, being queer is inherently political in a lot of ways. And, it is, yeah. yeah. And it's a funny thing when I say to people, oh, don't make it too political. I definitely don't. I'm not an apolitical person. Yeah. So it's not that. It's mm. not. It's about having a space that's not politicised by by the sort of straight society. Yeah. So if we shape the politics, that's fine. Mm. But I just didn't want a situation where we felt like we had to kind of perform for the straight gays or perform the mm. politics of kind of being a victim of, of straight society. It was meant to be about our creativity and intimacies. And so we can use shorthand. We don't have to kind of give people context for the queer experience because mm. it's meant to be by and about community. So that's kind of mean, what I mean when I say don't make it political. It's mm. not about it. Yeah. The content not being political, it's about it not being done for Mainstream society mm, as a rallying cry, as you as you describe mm, it. Mm. Um, I love how yeah. I love how intersectional and, and diverse these events are, both both in terms of the storytellers and the stories that they that they present. And 
these events challenge the idea that queer people's stories are, you know, like you said, more than just their tragic coming out tale or how they finally get to marry each other. And how do we continue challenging this idea of queer people looking a certain way, cis white gay men, um, and having these sorts of similar stories and making this diversity and intersectionality of queer people a more mainstream narrative? I mean, I think, like, yes, obviously people comment on the diversity of my program, and I I do that because I think it's more interesting. Mm. I think that if we continue to hear the same kind of stories over and over again, my events will be boring, and also our community will be really limited and really um, limited in our scope and our, you know, possibilities politically. Um, I think that the best way to do it is for everybody to just... I think that those of us... I mean, I am this and white, um, I'm not a man, but um, I've got a lot, lot of privilege and I know that it's actually work to dismantle that. Mm-hmm. And I think people think that if they're just not actively racist, that they're kind of doing the job and it's not. You actually have to do work. If you're going to program an event, you have to research beyond, you know, the intimacies of your own community. If you're, mm-hmm. gonna, if you're a reader, you have to read beyond the writers who look like you. And I think that those members in the community who have more privilege have to do that work. Mm. We actually have to go, all right, well, where is is my worldview limited and how can I actively expand it? Um, And I think that that a lot of members of the community are doing that. I think we're also still going to have privileged, wealthy, white, gay people who kind of go, "Mm, I think I feel more aligned to rich, straight people than I do to the members of my Mm. community. Mm. And that sucks, but I think that's going to happen. Like, class is can be just as powerful as um, sexuality, if not more powerful. Yes. And I think we're seeing that now. You know, marriage happens. There's a lot of privileged gay people who are like, cool, we're done. Yeah. <laughs> um, and mm. we're really not. Mm. I mean, just because, you know, the, the, the queer community... Um, sort of exists on the on the fringe of society doesn't mean that you know problems with class and, and race and all exactly. of that in the community as well. Yeah, absolutely well put. Mm. Um, so when and where is the next Queer Stories event, and how can listeners get tickets? So in Sydney, there's November 16th, and then December 7th, and then in Melbourne, I've got November 28th. Mm-hmm. Um, and then January 23rd is not quite on sale. So they kind of happen monthly. So if people find Queer Stories on Facebook, mm-hmm. um, I pop the events up there and people respond to them. I, they're often not, um, they often sell out quite early. So people, November, for example, people should book quite soon mm. um, if yep. they want to come along. Yeah. Sounds great. I will see you at the next event. Thank you so much for joining us see today. You. Thanks for having me. Great Voices CDs on 3CR. These CDs are a unique collection. Now you can go to 3cr.org.au and you can order online all the 20 CDs, 15 issues, for $160 postage pay. Or check the individual issues and read each track on it. Every major singer is on there. You'll be excited and entranced. Go to 3cr.org.au now and check out the wonderful Great Voices CDs. What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. Thank you.
done by law. An informal and irreverent look at the law. Critical insights and analysis from diverse community perspectives. Done by law, 6pm Tuesdays. And I'm Mario. And we're Chronically Chronically Chilled. A program that aims to provide a platform to those living with chronic and invisible illness, as well as exploring topics that impact on our daily lives. Listen to Chronically Chilled, the first Wednesday of every month at 6pm. Welcome back to Tuesday Becky on 3CR. We are wrapping up the show um, soon. George has a song to play. I'm getting the eyes. I'm getting the eyes. What a great show today. Yeah. Um, can you put the mics on? Because I feel like a weirdo just talking to myself <laughs> here. Um, so we just wanted to say thank you to all of our guests because we had some really incredible people joining us this morning. We had Bailey Rose Farnham from Tilda Film Festival. We had Madison Griffiths and then Chantelle from Hey Auntie live in the studio. Um, and Anya has just gotten off the phone with Maeve Marsden from Queer Stories. All incredible, incredible interviews. I actually can't wait to listen back to today's mm. program. And I think we're going to um, wrap it up with a song and then go to today's episode of Accent of Women, which is by our very own Ayan Shirwa. And it's about freedom of speech on social media. So definitely stay tuned for that and we'll see you next week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.